to uh, SACPAR. Our topic today is Palestine and Israel. How is peace possible? And we're delighted to have uh, Debbie Hubbard here. She's from, as so many people in Alberta, from rural Saskatchewan. Uh, she and her husband, Dean, have traveled extensively across uh, various parts of the world, and she has had an abiding interest in our global neighbors and the environment, and as a result of that, uh, looking to uh, justice for all peoples, she has become involved with our United Church, uh, of which I'm a member, and as a result of her work with the United Church, uh, she was appointed to uh, be an uh, ecumenical accompanier to East Jerusalem from October 2014 to January 2015. And it, her talk will be based on her trip there for those four months, and she will give an account of her experiences. And we must understand this. She's giving her talk through her experiences through the framework of international humanitarian law and human rights. And the economical, uh, ecumenical accompaniment uh, program in Palestine and Israel is an initiative under the World Council of Churches, and it's an effort by all of the churches, uh, regardless of denomination that have joined, to end the illegal, what they consider the illegal occupation of Palestine in the Middle East. And they uh, assist in accompanying churches and others to Israel and the occupied territory in efforts to end that occupation. So without further ado, Debbie, I'd like to call on you to give your presentation. So uh, good afternoon. Just I'll start while we find the PowerPoint. Uh, my introduction to Lethbridge has, for the past six years, my husband comes and runs a 100-mile or 100K uh, Lost Soul ultramarathon. So it's good to come and not spend my time in the coolies for 25 hours supporting him and to be with you instead. So thank you for inviting me to share my stories. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge that we're standing today on the traditional lands of the Treaty 7 First Nations. While I was in Palestine and Israel, there were so many parallels for me in terms of our own Canadian history and our relationship with First Nations people. If nothing else from my time there, I'm even more committed to continue the work that has begun here to restore equal rights and right relationships with the Indigenous people of our own land. Your question, is peace possible, is particularly pertinent at this time when the tension is so high in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the remaining parts of the Middle East. My role in Palestine and Israel was to be an accompanier, to bear witness, and then to come back to Canada and share the stories and reality of my time there. There is a quote from the late Nigerian writer, Chinwa Achubi, that speaks to me in terms of my own role in telling this story. Until lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So today I want to offer some stories and data from the perspective of those who we don't usually hear from in terms of our mainstream media here in Canada, the Palestinians and the Israelis who've been working for a just peace and an end to the occupation. 
There are many different frameworks through which I could tell this story, but I've chosen to share it through the lens of human rights. And today I'm going to focus on three of the many human rights violations that I witnessed during my three months. The destruction of personal property, the displacement of people, and the freedom of movement. So Ed briefly described the ecumenical accompaniment program, and here in Canada, the United Church, which I was born into in the, in the late 50s, um, is the national organizing partner. And what it does is we send, they send seven teams, or, or seven teams are sent from around the world, and we're organized into teams of four to five people. We have a three-month uh, permit because we're in our visa because we're not a recognized program, and we work with the program, the EAPPI program, that is based in Jerusalem. We have three roles here, protective presence, monitoring and witness, and advocating. It's a pro uh, the EAPPI program is a program of the World Council of Churches, and um, we're in six different communities in East Jerusalem and then five other communities in the West Bank. And people often ask, well, why aren't we in Israel? And the reason is because we've never been asked by anyone in Israel to come and monitor the reality on the ground there. So we only go where we're invited, and this was at the invitation in 2002 of the, world of the Christian churches in historic Palestine. Oops, I'm going wrong again. So routine tasks, just very quickly, I was based in East Jerusalem, and I spent each day in the old city monitoring the ac access to El Axis Mosque, which is the third most holy site for Muslims in the world. I was did checkpoint duty at Kalandia Checkpoint three times per week from 4.30 to 7.30 a.m., and from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. I attended two weekly nonviolent protests, and... Um, I did weekly or monthly monitoring of three other checkpoints. I visited vulnerable Palestinian communities. I visited and supported the Bedouin communities. I reported on settler harassments and demolitions, and I provided support to the Christian churches. There are many um, uh, Israeli groups working uh, in solidarity with us for peace and an end to the occupation. And these are some of them, and there's a handout on the table um, that lists many of them that you can check out their work. And I'm specifically going to talk a bit about Moxham Watch in a few moments. Just to orient us a little bit, this is a map of the Middle East, and that little country of Israel is surrounded to the north by Lebanon and Syria, which we've heard a lot about in the news. To the east is Jordan, and to the south, and a little bit southwest is Egypt. I just want to mention that um, the Israel, the West Bank, and Jerusalem and Gaza is two-thirds the size of Vancouver Island. So we're talking about a very small part of the country. I spent as much time coming on the bus yesterday from Edmonton in time as what it would take to travel from the north to the south end of Israel. And again, this just shows you a map, the orange being um, what is known as Israel and the gray being what is um, the understanding of Palestine as it was in 48 in the partition and uh, when it was divided. And then the small gray um, is Gaza. 
Uh, on the table, there are two maps as well, and I just want to draw your attention to them quickly. The first map shows in 46, the green being historic Palestine, and the white being land that was occupied by or settled by Jewish um, people. There have always been Jewish people, even prior to the partition in 47. But you can see that at that time, the bulk of the land was uh, settled by Palestinians. Then what happened with the UN decision in 47? You can see that the bulk of the land went to Israel, and the green in the north is the Golan Heights. To the right is uh, Jordan, and to the down bottom corner are, um, is the West Bank, and to the bottom left corner is Gaza. Then what happened after the Six-Day War, you can see that Golan Heights became occupied by Israel, and the, uh, bulk, the bulk of Gaza became occupied by Israel, as well as much a uh, good chunk of the West Bank. The fourth map in 2000 shows um, what now currently remains of under full Palestinian control. The bulk of the West Bank is um, currently under um, Israeli control. And I just want you to hang on to that last map in your mind. Just notice the green. I'm going to flip over to 12 years later in 2012. What do you notice in that last map of the green in the West Bank? Pardon me? It's all divided up. So it's what we call the Swiss cheese. And so that is why many people believe that no longer a two-state solution is possible because there are too many facts on the ground. Too many Israeli settlements, too, many in, too much infrastructure of roads and the wall. Just to give you a sense of the population shift, these are the demographics of Israel and, and Palestine combined with um, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the West Bank. In 1931, approximately 75% of the population was Muslim, and 9% Christian, and 17% Jewish. In 1950, 47%, this is after the partition division when 750,000 Palestinians were made refugees, 47% was Muslim, 50% Jewish, and 3% Christian. And now in 2014, we're about equal again. And this is a great demographic question because if there was to be one state or a two-state, a bi-nation solution, it would an equal rights for everybody, there's a real question for Israel around who would have the majority vote because they haven't, even with all the uh, taking of the land, the population of the Palestinians, the Muslims and Christians, isn't really declining. It's about a 50-50 split. So back to um, specifically now about m myself. What you're looking at there is a view from the uh, Mount of Olives of the old city, and there's myself in Jerusalem actually taking a call to attend a house demolition. After 1948, Jerusalem was divided, and West Jerusalem became under Israeli rule, and East Jerusalem, including the old city, was ruled by Jordan. Then prior to 1967, most of present-day Jerusalem was not part of Israel, but rather part of the West Bank. After the war, in 67, East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, and parts of the West Bank were annexed by Israel into one municipality. These territories included not only the part of Jerusalem that had been under Jordanian rule, but also an additional 64 square kilometers, 
most of which belonged to 28 villages in the West Bank. The new borders were set by a committee headed by a military general and approved by Israeli's government. In order to ensure a significant Jewish majority at that time in 67, the primary consideration was to prevent the inclusion of heavily populated Palestinian areas within Jerusalem. So, Palestinian Arab villages and neighborhoods were divided. One part remained in the West Bank and the other part was annexed by, by Israel. And so I would go to a house and a brother would live on one side of the wall and his family on the other and they could stand and talk from the roofs to each other. The international community does not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but rather Tel Aviv. And it's important again to keep in mind how small this country is. This is my team. F um, five internationals from around the world representing three generations, 24 to 69 years of age. Just many times people say, well, did the Palestinians and the Israeli people appreciate you being there? And these are some of the quotes. It's amazing how the treatment changes when you are here. They, the soldiers, are nicer. The lines move faster. Thank you for being here. People like you give me hope. When I see governments in all the world, I don't have hope. And usually when you guys are here, they are good, but not today. This is the data from two months. Um, what we did in our work, um, we're the group that's been there longest on the ground and most consistently, 12 months of the year we're there. So we collect the data when the UN reports to our government and publicly what's happening over there, the facts on the ground. This, it's our group along with two other groups that collect most of the data. So every time I went to home demolition, I filed a report that went to the UN as an example. So you can see in the first two months that I was there, there were 11 Palestinian fatalities by Israeli security forces, 1,463 injuries, search and arrest 1,068 Palestinians, settler-related violence against Palestinians, 60. These are settlers, not soldiers. Palestinian violation against Israeli settlers causing injury or damage, 106. Structural demolition, 103 and persons displaced by demolitions, 279. So I want to be clear, there is violence on both sides. What's out of, out of scope is the depth and the quantity and quality of the, uh, the violence that is happening. So I'm going to speak specifically right now about the freedom of movement. Strategies are used by the Israeli government to limit the Palestinians' freedom of movement. The wall, there's physical barriers, the permits, and flying checkpoints. The permit system. Over 125 permits control everything from ability to work, to build, to renovate, to marry, to travel to Jerusalem, to go to school, etc. During the Christmas season, Christian and Bethlehems are given a three-month permit to travel to Jerusalem. And this is uh, some quotes from Palestinians around the impact of that permit system. For three months of the year, Israel doesn't consider me a terrorist. And that was a Christian Palestinian woman, Nawal, who became a friend of my husband's who was in Bethlehem at the time I was in Jerusalem. And what she's referring to is that year, because of the Gaza conflict that had happened in August, the economy and tourism was very down. And so they needed to have um, the Palestinians coming in 
to spend some of the money to boost the economy in Jerusalem, which is under Israel control. And so at the churches, as long as you were on the list of the church, you were automatically given a permit for three months to go in and out of um, Jerusalem through the checkpoint. And then this broke my heart. A 22-year-old Bedouin girl, why can you go to Jerusalem and I can't? I've never been to Tel Aviv. There are Palestinians living less than an hour from the Mediterranean who have never seen the Mediterranean and their family owned land before the partition in um, Israel. So there are approximately estimated 532 closures within the West Bank, and there's a variety of them, checkpoints, road gates, trenches, earth walls, roadblocks, and the barriers. What you're seeing in the bottom left um, picture is an agricultural gate in northern West Bank, and a farmer has to wait there until the gate is opened at the discretion of the Israeli security forces. And what you're seeing um, on the rocks there is a gentleman who has a Palestinian farming family who live outside of Bethlehem, and they have the titles to their land since the Ottoman Empire. And one day, uh, the Israeli security forces decided they could no longer use that road, and so they bulldozed the road, and the family has to go 25 miles out of their way to get into Bethlehem. So the wall, the fence, the barrier, it depends who it is. Um, calling it or labeling it. Official reason it was started to prevent suicide bombers in the uh, second Antifada in 2000, about 2000. Israel has the right to defend itself. Our foreign policy in Canada says that. But what they don't have is the right to build on Palestinian land. 85% of this wall built to protect the Israelis from suicide bombers is on in the West Bank. But what's even more interesting is that 150 settlements representing 80% of the settler population live in the West Bank. So they've built a wall that's taken up a good chunk of the West Bank to protect Israelis from Palestinian suicide bombers, and at the same time they've moved half a million of their uh, population into the West Bank to live. So the logic uh, behind this escapes most of us. In addition to the 150 settlements, there are 100 settler outposts. These are outposts not authorized by the government by which they allow to happen. And they become the foundation for a settlement. So that's how the Swiss cheese has happened since in the last 12 years specifically since the wall was built. <coughs> Access to education. How many of you have children in your life? Kids? Grandkids? Any of you? Yeah, all of us. People ask me if there was a particular moment that was difficult or frustrating for me, and I call it the black night of my soul. And I have to say it was my first day monitoring this checkpoint. This is the Tune checkpoint. It's a walk-through no-vehicle checkpoint between El Azariah, which is in the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, which is now under Israeli occupation. It's, we monitored it monthly, and in one hour, 300 children walked through to school. Prior to 1967, it was connected. The two communities were 10 minutes from the center of Jerusalem and the old city. Now the reality is that the kids are dropped off on the West Bank side of the checkpoint. They walk through the checkpoint to catch their bus, and their parents can't go with them because they need a permit. If their parents want to attend a parent-teacher meeting, a sports activity, or an awards meeting, they must apply for this permit. And I asked one of the parents on the El Azaria side, as she was dropping off her child, 
what happens when your child gets sick? And she gave what we came to call the Palestinian shrug. I wait till they come home, she said. And here they are. This is the part that broke my heart because I have five and seven-year-old nieces and nephews. The two little girls walked through the checkpoint and I followed them through and then they grabbed their hands and skipped off down to catch their bus, just like any five or six or seven-year-old might do here, except they went through a checkpoint that left their mom on the other side. The right to work or livelihood. This is the checkpoint at Kalandia. It's the main checkpoint from the northern west bank from Ramallah to Jerusalem. People travel to Jerusalem to worship, to work, to go to school, to visit the family. Depending on traffic, it should take 20 to 30 minutes to drive from this checkpoint to the, inner, to the old city of Jerusalem. But you need a permit. And depending on the day, up to 2,000 people pass through this checkpoint in three hours. But it could take them anywhere from 15 to 90 minutes to do it. Many times, mayhem and clashes erupt, especially if the line is slow. And this is how it works. They start lining up about an hour and a half before the checkpoint opens at 6. You can see the three chutes they line up. Sometimes, for whatever reason, one of the chutes gets closed midway, and then they have to back out and line up in another chute. Then once they go through the chute and the turnstile, then they line up, and there's five more turnstiles, and they'll have an air X like this. And if there's a green check, it means that checkpoint is open. And if it's not, um, then it's the red arrow X is up. But there were many mornings they would have the red X showing that it was closed, even though we could see as observers it was open. And uh, many people, we would call this the cattle shoot because it looks very familiar to what we would do to uh, herd cattle. These are the Moxham Watch. These are the Israeli women who, since 2000, have been monitoring the checkpoints. And I asked them once, why you do this? Why do you take, um, go against your family and your culture and your society to do this? Because it creates lots of tension. They said, because we know what this occupation is doing to our young people. Because these are young soldiers, the 17, 18, and 19-year-olds that are monitoring these checkpoints. And we want them to remember who they are. Just briefly, I'm going to talk about displacement of people. There are four ways people are displaced. Refugees internal, refugees external, home demolitions, and the Bedouins living in the hills around Jerusalem. We know lots about the external refugees because some of the Syrian refugees that are now being made refugees once again are originally Palestinian refugees. And I'm going to specifically just talk about home demolitions. Demolitions are an intentional strategy by the Israeli government to displace Palestinians and encourage Palestinians to leave either Jerusalem or the West Bank. They use zoning and planning to legitimize the demolitions which are illegal under international law. So in Jerusalem, where I was based, when Israel occupied in 67, they made all of East Jerusalem zoned park. So you know what that means in Canada. If something's zoned park, what's happened if you want to build a house or a business on it? You have to apply, right, for permits and change of zoning. And who controls it is the Israeli military, not the Israeli civil authority, but the Israeli military. In the first two weeks I was there, I attended more demolitions than my the team before me in three months. And the UN reported that in 2014, they had more demolitions in Jerusalem and the West Bank than they had in any year since 2008. 
This did not include Gaza and the conflict in 2014. So this is a demolition. I would get a call, and I'm walking up a street, so imagine any street, residential street here in Lethbridge. This is the family. Behind is the ruins of their house. So at about 6.30 that morning, they heard a bulldozer coming up the lane between the complex. This is a four-story condo on each side, and this addition had been built on the father-in-law's house. They hear the bulldozer, which for a Palestinian means a demolition. The wife is standing at this kitchen sink, making her kitchen counter, making her husband's breakfast or lunch. This is the bathroom. This is the master bedroom. This is the kids' bedroom. This is what remains of the house. And now we have what we call collective punishment because this is an addition to an ad a house that already exists. So the people living in the house that this addition is attached to, also you can imagine the structural damage that happens to a house when a bulldozer knocks down the structure attached to it. This is a, a structure that had been there for five years and they'd never received a demolition notice. This family, if they had received a demolition notice, would have had the option of destroying the house themselves. If they don't destroy the house themselves, they get about a $20,000 bill from the Israeli government to pay for this demolition. This is where I asked where do people say, where do they sleep? The men will sleep here, and the women will move into, and the kids will move in with whatever family relatives can take them, a tent. In this case, the father-in-law lives right next door. And um, the thing to keep in mind is you can imagine the psychosocial impact of a child going to school because most of the demolitions will happen while the husband's at work and the kids are at school. So you leave your house in the morning and you come home and your house is a pile of rubble. Or better yet, I love my mother-in-law. I've known her all my life. I couldn't imagine moving in with my mother-in-law under that kind of condition and not having nowhere else to live. And people will say to me, well, why don't they leave? If a Palestinian living in East Jerusalem who has a residency permit, permit leaves and lives in the West Bank, they lose any access to Jer uh, Jerusalem and have to apply every time they want to visit it. So no Palestinian who has a residency to live in Jer Jerusalem will leave Jerusalem to live anywhere else. I'll just skip through here. So I just want to close because I know we'll probably have lots of questions. Um, I just want to give you some voices from some of the... Um, people working there for peace and an end to the occupation. This is Jilla Savisky, and she's one of the founding members. And what we have to realize um, is that when a country is occupying another country, which Israel is doing in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, it impacts the citizens because the whole country, many Palestinians and Israelis only meet at the end of the gun. An Israeli, many of them do not meet a Palestinian until they meet them in conflict, either at uh, checkpoint or in the skirmishes and clashes and some of what we're hearing in the news now. And her voice is powerful because she's telling us, if we care not only about the soil, but the soul of Israeli people, then we must end the occupation. This is Hannah Barak. I always say in the United Church, we could use a woman like her, 80 years old, what a ball of fire. She, many of the European people like on my team, none of them had been to Israel and Palestine before. And so when they saw some of this stuff and she came back to do some reflection with us, she's a member of the Moxham Watch, they said, this isn't logical or rational. And she said, send your logic home. What you're going to see here isn't rational. It's not but a uh, logical, rational, just seeking 
citizen would do. And this is Mikkel, who has formed uh, an organization working um, Israeli-Palestinian organization called the Alternative Information Center, has lived in Jerusalem for 15 years, and he's about 75 years of age. And he describes, as a Jewish person, Israel was like a house guest, invited into the Palestinian home. However, we didn't enter politely. They walked through the entrance, took over the entire house, the living room, the bedroom, the kitchen, and even the bathroom. And these are from Palestinians. They treat us like animals, and we start to act like animals. If you put a cat in a corner and you beat him and never let him move freely, he becomes a tiger. That is what is happening to us. They're turning people back. They are 18 years old. I'm 70 years old. It's humiliating. They control everything. This is a Palestinian man trying to get through the checkpoint at Kalandia one morning on his way to Friday prayer at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this gentleman says, they've taken our land. If I get angry, it will make me sick and I will not let them take my health. This is an American Palestinian who has returned in the signing of the Oslo Accords because he truly believed it was going to be a new time in Palestine and Israel. And he came back to help rebuild the country. And um, every day he has to go through the Kalandia checkpoint because he cannot live in Jerusalem. And finally, the kids. This is from a Palestinian in Bethlehem. We don't want our children to be brought up in fear and perplexed or confused about what their future will be. And now from North Americans. So is peace possible? This is uh, Ursula Franklin. She's a Canadian and a survivor of the Holocaust. And she says, peace is not the absence of war, which is what I think our government at times believes. Rather, it is the presence of justice and the absence of fear. And Martin Luther King says, we will have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and the actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people, which I believe is each of us. And the last, I visited the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg, which if you have a chance to visit, it just opened uh, a year or so ago. It's a powerful thing. And it says, words are powerful. When people dare to break the silence about mass atrocities to promote the human rights of everyone. And I'll leave the last words to Martin Luther King because he, his birthday this year fell on the day last year when I arrived home. And he says, an injustice anywhere is a threat to injustice everywhere. We are caught in an escapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. Thank you.